So I'd like to take as a text, please, this morning, the words of Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 13. Verse 13. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and shewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And I want to ask two questions of this text. First of all, what does this passage say about us? And then secondly, what does this passage say about God? But before looking at the, the passage itself, I want to say a little bit just about the context of the passage. Jeremiah began life as a country priest. He was called as a young man into the ministry, God's word, um, as, as a priest. And then later in life, God called him um, as a prophet, although he, he must have actually been quite a young man, possibly a teenager, when that happened. He had a long career of about uh, 40 years, and he lived through the reigns of four kings of Judah. Now, if we think that this period of Brexit and Corona is difficult, Judah at this time was facing possible annihilation at the hands of the rising superpower Babylon. And from a prophet's point of view, the leaders were facing the looming threat in entirely the wrong ways. It all sounds a bit familiar, doesn't it? It was Jeremiah's job to try to warn them and to help them make the right God-glorifying decisions. And he did this by bringing the messages from God's word. So that's how chapter 2 uh, verse, verses 1 and 2 begin. The word of the Lord came to me saying, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. This is what God is saying to you as a nation. This is God's truth. This is his unchanging truth. This is what you, listen, you need to listen to in the face of this um, up and coming disaster. It's God's word that you need. God's word. That's the same today. It hasn't changed. What the people need today is to hear God's unchanging truths, the word of God. So going back to our two questions that we're going to ask about this text then, what does this passage say, first of all, about us, about you and me? It has to be relevant to us. This is God's unchanging word. These are his unchanging truths. They're relevant today as they were thousands of years ago to the people of Judah. And the first thing it says to us is that we are prone to forsake God. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me. We are prone to turn our backs on God. And it's an evil thing to do that in light of what God has done for us. Now look at what God had done for them. The people of Judah. We see that um, outlined in verses 6 to 7. They did not say, where is the Lord who brought us up? up from the land of Egypt who led us in the wilderness in the land of deserts and pits in a land of drought and deep darkness in a land that none passes through where no man dwells and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things all of these great things God had done for them he had led them, he had guided them through the sufferings of the wilderness, he had brought them into a fruitful land, he had provided for them, 
protected them, delivered them from their enemies. And now the people forget all about God. They turn their back on Yahweh. And it's always been like that, folks. As verse 2 shows, we have had love for God in the past, but then we forget about them. These people had been in love with God at one time. They had shown him devotion, it says in verse number 2. Very striking words in verse number 2. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride. Okay? Love as a bride. Ladies, can you remember that? The love you had as a bride. Remember walking down that aisle and you saw him there? You know, there he was and he saw you coming towards him and and the love that you both have for each other that first love it's something wonderful isn't it when you when you saw your your bride gentlemen your hearts skipped a beat uh, you know when you went out for that walk on a summer's evening with her you held her hand it was just absolutely amazing it was wonderful um, you couldn't put it into words Poets have tried to do that. Shakespeare tried to do it in the sonnets, and his love sonnets, but nobody can really capture that first love. You know, I do hope it's still there. I do hope that it is still bubbling within your heart, that first love. Uh, you know, remember what it was like. Remember it. Uh, you left her notes. You brought her flowers and chocolate. Chocolates, yes. Let's, let's keep on doing those things. Those things are really important to keep love alive. But first love is something special. It's something to try and keep in your relationship with one another. What a tragedy when covenant marriage is broken and a husband or wife abandon the one, the one they, they once said they loved. And maybe we have been in situations where people have had that tra- sort of tragedy in their lives. And it is. Let's not undermine it. It's something really sad. To see someone walk away from, from one they once said they really loved. And yet how more tragic to see these people walk away from God and turn their backs on him whom they once said they loved. But the question comes back to you and me this morning. How vibrant is our love today for Jesus? When Jesus assessed the church at Ephesus, the big problem was not their doctrine, not their orthodoxy, not their preaching, not their teaching, not their evangelism, something else. Jesus, remember when he assessed the church at Ephesus, he said this, I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear those who are evil, but but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. And this is where it all changes. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Searching words, aren't they? Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. They abandoned their first love. Remember then not only Jesus' assessment of a church, but Jesus' assessment of an individual Christian. Okay? And that, of course, was Peter. 
Remember after the breakfast, remember the, the, the barbecue on the beach, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. He said, that is Jesus, he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Third time. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. It's all about Peter's love for Jesus. There does seem to be a kind of a, a going down in the, in, in the alluring of the bar of love there. Because it starts off using a Greek word, agapeo, which means, you know, the highest form of love that you can have for someone, putting someone above yourself. And then... Uh, Jesus in his last do you love me question he seems to lower the bar and he says well do you have affection for me it's a different word that's used it seems to be a sort of a lowering of the thing where's our love you know for Jesus is it that agapeo love that high love where we're going to sacrifice everything for him we were prepared to put him first in our lives or is it lower love you know, and only you personally can really gauge your love barometer for Jesus, can gauge the temperature of that love, the degree of devotion of that commitment to him. Love is so vital because when you have that kind of love, you'll not want to turn your back on the person. When you have deep love for Jesus, you won't want to turn your back on him and return to your old, old sinful ways. And so... Therefore, do the things that will foster your love for him. Just like husbands and wives should do the things that will sort of foster that first love, you know. Buy them chocolates, tell them you love them, send them notes, do things for them. That are a surprise, that are out of the, the norm. Do the things that foster love for Jesus. Read his word, prayer, fellowship, meditation. And as with your spouse, remember, you, you know, you remember them, you spend time with them, you go out together, you enjoy each other's company, you tell them often that you love them. So we ought to do that with the Lord Jesus in our relationship with him, spend time with him, walk with him, talk with him, bring your concerns to him. Don't turn your back on him who's given everything for you. So we forget God, and secondly, we replace God with substitutes. It's a, it's a devastating picture here in verse 13, isn't it? They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Have you ever tried to put water in a bucket with a hole in it? doesn't work, does it? It just flows all over the place. Have you ever had one of those basins in your sink? We have one, and there's a kind of a thing that you turn around and that lets the water out. Well, sometimes I've lifted the basin of dishes and it's been full of 
water and the, the, the wee thing has been turned to open and you, you sort of go into the dishwasher and there's a, this flood of water. Empty basins, empty sinks. The picture here is of limestone rock where they would have hewn out these cisterns to hold rainwater. But they plastered the inside of the, the containers. But if the, the plaster was cracked or developed a crack, the water would simply seep out and into the limestone porous rock and just would run away. And you came to get your water, it had vanished. The container was just an empty shell. Can you see the craziness of it all? These people have abandoned the living God for worthless substitutes, broken containers. They go their own way in terms of worship. They bow down to idols. As it says in Romans 1, they worship the creature rather than the creator. And the result of it all, verses 26 to 28 in, in our passage, on down, a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel should be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who said to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone you gave me birth, for they have turned their back on me, and not their face, but in the time of their trouble they say, arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise if they can save you in, in your time of trouble. Where are your gods? Where are your substitutes? Where are the gods you have made? In your day of trouble, they're nowhere to be seen. They're empty cisterns. Useless. Worthless. Don't you see the craziness of this? To forsake God and his truth for something that's absolutely useless? And their leaders were promoting this. These were false shepherds. We've read of them. False shepherds. The shepherds, verse 8, have transgressed against me. The prophets, this is unbelievable. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Think of during the general election. One could say that there was little substance, vague promises, but a forsaking of righteousness. There seems to be almost a suggestion here that they have forsaken God for dishonest gain. Verse 34, on down towards the end of the passage, also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. That's harsh. It's a suggestion of injustice. It's a, suggest of, a suggestion of, of the suppression of the poor, the oppression of the poor. Injustice towards those who have least. Suggestion that they have substituted God for selfish gain. 
Didn't Jesus warn of that? Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters for either he'll hate the one and love the other or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and mammon. And mammon is the Semitic word for money or possessions. You know, you can't be divided in your allegiances. You can't serve Jesus and money or Jesus and possessions. It's, it's one or the other. Before that, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You know, if we're putting things before God, our heart will be in those things. That's, that's what it's saying. Our allegiance will be found and located in those things. If you value possessions, money, career in a way that pushes God out, those things, those possessions, that career, even that person or that family or that relationship, those things are going to have your devotion. You're going to put those things before God. And that's what we call in the Bible idolatry. And it's self-destructive. Ultimately, the pursuit is a following after worthless things. Empty cisterns. Yes, I'm not saying we don't need money. But if you put all of your energies and efforts into making money or gaining possessions, if we go after those things disproportionately in our lives and put them before serving God, it will lead ultimately to loss rather than gain. Just think of the picture of those stock markets the other day, seeing those, uh, what are they called, stock managers or city bankers or whatever they are, and, uh, you know, the, the bell rings. I think it's quite hilarious. The bell rings, and they're all shaking hands and smiling at one another. It's wonderful. It's great. We're going to have a day of making money. And then they go to the computer screens, and everything's red it's going to do and they're oh, shock and horror and everything is a disaster it just has gone like that in a moment everything has changed the bottom has fallen out of the world it can happen to you it can happen to me in a moment the bottom can fall out of your world so where's your heart at that time are you, if you're trusting in something that lets you down, you're going to go down with it. But if you're trusting in God, the fountain of living water, you're safe. You're, you're trusting in the one who will never let you go and never disappoint you. If we get these things out of proportion, they will desert us in the end. We need God in our lives. We need Jesus first in our lives. Saviour, if of Zion's city, I through grace a member am. Let the world deride or pity, I will glory in thy name. Fading, fading is the worldling's pleasure. All his boasted pomp and show. S listen to this carefully, what we've sung. Solid joys, solid joys and lasting treasure. None but Zion's children know. Seek first the lasting 
joys and treasures of Jesus Christ. You know, one of the big things that's an idol in my life, just to speak personally about this, is ease and comfort. It's very selfish. It has consequences in my relationship with my wife and my family. A couple of weeks ago, you know, when the rugby was still on, I wanted to watch the rugby. I, wanted, I was preparing myself, had been doing so for days, preparing myself for the enjoyment of spending basically all day Saturday watching the rugby. You might think, well, you know, what's wrong with that? <laughs> well, there could be a lot wrong with that. If I'm neglecting my wife, if I'm neglecting my family, if I'm neglecting God's work, if I'm neglecting other priorities in life. To just set myself the goal of spending that whole day in front of the TV screen watching the rugby, which at the end of the day is really, I need to tell myself, totally inconsequential in the great grand scheme of things. I have to ask myself, am I putting my priorities right there? And a few times my, w- <laughs> my wife would come to me and say, is it nearly over? And on one occasion I said, there's only 10 minutes left. That was a lie. I sat on for another 20 minutes at least. Or maybe half an hour. And she came back again. I thought you said there was only 10 minutes left. And I got angry. I got perturbed and irritated and spoke to her unkindly. What's that? That's idolatry in my heart. Operating. That's a for What did I do in those moments? I did exactly what this passage is saying. I forsook God. I put myself first. I denied love. I loved self rather than her and God most of all. Do you see that? Do you see in that small exchange of, of our relationship what happened there? You might think, well, you know, like it's not the end of the world. It's not the end of the world, but you know something? If that's repeated time and time again, there's the possibility that I could become a more angry husband the possibility that I could become more frustrated, the possibility that I could become more idolatrous, the possibility that I could begin to forget God in my life more and more, and that could become ingrained, and my heart could be... Look, it's a vicious circle. It's a cycle, folks. It's a progression. That's what we see in this chapter. We see a terrible progression, and Jeremiah is trying to hold it back. So that's what we see about ourselves. But then secondly, what do we see here about God? Three things, very quickly and very simply. We see three things about God. First of all, he's a God of grace. The very fact that that Jeremiah is speaking here shows that he is a God of grace. God in his grace gave these people prophets, gave them preachers. God in his grace has given you preachers and elders and people who can encourage you and bring uh, the word of God to you. He gave them a faithful preacher for 40 years. 
despite their unfaithfulness. He longs for them to avoid the inevitable outcome of their abandonment of him. He warns them, he reasons with them, he speaks to them because they are his people and he loves them. If your child goes astray and in the wrong direction, what are you going to do? You're going to sit back and say, oh, you know, look at that child going astray. I just sit back here and let them go their own way. And you know, they have to learn by their mistakes. There is a sense in which, yes, children have to learn by their mistakes. And there is a sense in which children under our care and parentage uh, get to a certain age and they are adults. And we have to let them go their own way. Of course that is right. But will I not warn them? Will I not send them messages, text messages, and try to encourage them not to go in the wrong direction? Do it lovingly? Of course I will. Of course I will. Before my uh, uh, daughter goes out in the car, I will say things to her like, do not speed, do not break the speed limits, do not use your mobile phone in a car, do not drive drive fast, take care of what you're doing, etc. Why do I do that? Because I don't want the car bashed? No, I don't care about the car. I don't, I don't care about the car. I care about her. I don't want her to be hurt, and I don't want anyone else to be hurt. I care about her, and I care about other people. I don't care about that piece of metal. God is a God of grace. He loves us, so he warns us. He's warning us. I think he's warning us now at the present time. I think he's speaking to us. Speaking to our nation, will we repent? Secondly, we see here a God of glory who is immeasurable in his word and in his worth and in his value. I said to you about those uh, stock market guys sitting in front of their of their computer screens. In fact, they weren't sitting in front of them; they were standing up, you know, in shock and horror as billions were wiped off. Uh, their stocks and shares values. God's worth can never be diminished or devalued. But we can devalue him within ourselves when we turn our hearts to other things. But his essential worth, his glory, is undimmed. Are you living for his glory? Are you living for the glory of God? Realizing that solid and lasting value is to be found in him alone. Are you seeking first his glory? Putting his glory first in the decisions that you make. Before you make a decision, are you asking yourself, you know, how is God going to be glorified in this? The places that you go. The things that you watch on that screen. Do you ask yourself, before you switch on that button or press that button, or look at that screen, or go to that place, or speak in that way to your husband or your wife, do you ask yourself, first of all, do you take a little break, a little moment, first of all, and I'm speaking to myself here, do I ask myself, is this going to glorify God? Rewind to that rugby incident. I should have said to myself, you know something, your glory is more important than my rugby. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, Romans 12, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. I lost a dear friend recently who had been a missionary all, basically you know, all her life. She worked with me for 26 years and then she did about another 20 years in missionary service. She worked for a mission called Irish Evangelistic Band. Her life was spent for Jesus. I worked with her and I can honestly tell you that that lady lived every day of her life for Jesus. In the way that she worked, in the way that she spoke, in her, all of her dealings, she was 100% committed to him. And she was killed tragically in a car accident uh, a couple of weeks ago. You know, And it's just heartbreaking. But she's gone to glory. She's gone to her reward, to the lasting joys and the lasting treasures that she lived for. She lived for those things. He's a God of grace. And he's a God of glory. And finally, he is a God of life. He is described as the fountain of living waters. What a crazy thing to have abandoned the fountain for the dry dust of an empty cistern. But that's what we are doing all the time. That's what the people around us are all doing. They're abandoning and forsaking and forgetting about the fountain of living waters and they're eating dry dust. He offered true life to the people of Judah, but they turned away from him to dig their own wells, which were ultimately useless. It couldn't hold water. And folks, we're still in the business, we're still in the business of digging our own wells in an attempt to find true life and happiness and joy and satisfaction. And people are trying all kinds of wells around us. The wells of good works, the wells of church going, the wells of legalism. Keep all these laws and rules and regulations and you'll be all right. The well of a thing called antinomianism, which just says, oh, you know, the law of God, the word of God doesn't matter. We can just do our own thing. The well of science, the well of psychology, the well of veganism, the well of moralism, the well of self-help, the well of athleticism and fitness and going to the gym, the well of alcoholism, the well of addiction to all kinds of things, the well of pornography, the well of capitalism, the well of communism, the well of loyalism, the well of nationalism, the well of evangelicalism. All of these wells people are digging. Some of these things are not harmful in and of themselves. There are good things in many of them. But the problem is that our hearts are sinful and we latch on to these things and we make allegiances to them and they become our gods. And ultimately none of these things can take away the suffering of life and the tragedies of life and the difficulties of life and the sorrows of life. They are DIY attempts at solving our problems. There might be some help in some of them, for a time, 
for a season in psychology, in athleticism and in fitness, for example, in evangelicalism. There are help in these, there's help to be found in these things. But they can, in and of themselves, never deal with the great problem, our basic problem of our sin. As we go around digging these wells, you see the problem is we refuse the true and lasting offer of life that God brings to us in the message of the gospel. And so the problem with digging these wells is that the whole effort is useless. We try by our own efforts to get peace with God. And as Jeremiah points out in verse 22, though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, we all know about soap, don't we? The stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord. The stain of your guilt. So what must we do? We must flee to the fountain filled with blood. That flows from Emmanuel's veins. Until we find our hearts satisfied in the Lord Jesus Christ. And not in all of these other things. We will never be at peace. Restless. Unhappy. As we see in our society today. This restless. This panicking. This joyless. Ill society. Yes, sadly it will become physically ill. But even more tragic is its spiritual sickness. Because its substitutes, its God's substitutes, will never fully satisfy and meet the need of the human heart. We were wired at the beginning to be right with God. To need God first and foremost in our lives. We need to turn from these substitutes. And we need to encourage in these days others around us to turn to God, the living God, to meet our deepest needs. And the good news is that God and grace has met your longings in the gospel. As the woman at the well found out, Jesus the Messiah meets our deepest needs to be right with God. By his work on the cross, he reconciled sinners to God and he now offers us peace through faith in his blood. And now may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and evermore. Amen.